Well, as we said, we're in uh, this letter, the first letter uh, that Peter wrote. Well, maybe not the first letter he wrote, but the first letter he wrote that we have in the Bible. There's another one after this, to Peter. Peter was a disciple of Jesus. He's writing this 30 years after the death and resurrection ascension of the Lord Jesus. And in that intervening time, he hasn't been a fisherman. He's been a church leader. So he's writing this letter from a wealth of experience. And uh, we've been grappling recently, in the last month or so, as we've gone through chapter 2 and into chapter 3, with the whole subject of authority, as we said. We've been getting increasingly personal. Uh, We were dealing with politics and civil authority. And then we came a little closer to home and we were thinking about the workplace and thinking about employment. And then we're coming right close to home and thinking about the whole subject of marriage and uh, women and men, men and women. Last week, as we said, we were thinking about verses 1 to 6, which are Peter's instructions to Christian women who who live, no no doubt, in a very brutal culture. And um, Peter had some very profound things to say there, which are very relevant to our modern culture as well. Today, as I said, we want to think about verse 7, And we're going to explore a little about what true masculinity looks like uh, from a biblical perspective. I've talked with a few of you uh, over the last few weeks as we've been going through this and uh, a few of you have said that you've never heard in any church any teaching at all about these kind of issues, which is really staggering, isn't it? some, some people have said to me maybe it's because it's a taboo subject nobody really likes to tell anyone else what to do when these are kind of private matters um, someone was saying to me this week that in the whole subject of abuse uh, maybe 20 years ago if there was a domestic uh, thing going on in someone's home the police would be called and they would go and they'd say this is a domestic it's nothing to do with us and maybe there's something in that that stuff that goes on in the home is private we don't talk about it and uh, maybe that's one reason why churches and ministers shy away from this as a subject maybe it's also because some of our churches are quite small and when we talk about these subjects it's very difficult for people who are listening to not think he's talking about me (laughs) and maybe in a bigger church that's kind of a little bit more anonymous so I want to assure you at the beginning that I'm not picking on you uh, this, you know, this is the Bible we're going through it we happen to be at verse 7 today and we're going to talk uh, to and about men I think it's also true to say that generally speaking there are more women than men in churches and uh, so maybe this subject's just ignored from that perspective I think that's very sad someone said in America I think I've got this stat right in America There are 14 million more women in churches than there are men. I don't know what that stat looks like for the UK. Maybe that's good if you're a single Christian man. Maybe not so good if you're a single Christian woman looking for the kind of man that this passage is talking about. Um, That's a kind of raw deal, isn't it? Uh, And it's a frustration to me as a preacher that there are not more men here to hear this kind of teaching because it's so important. This kind of teaching not only changes lives, but will change a culture. 
And I, and I said it last week. We talked very seriously to women last week. You can listen to that if you want to catch that up. The truth is that it is far easier for women to live like women should when men live like men should. That is the fact. It is hard for women to be women when men refuse to step up to the plate and live like men should. And so today, this is important for men, and I wish there were more men here. Maybe you can give the MP3 to them if you know men who should have been here and are not. I think, on the other hand, though, it is true, and I know this because I'm a man, that men are very confused about what masculinity is. I think the women's sort of feminist movement has done no good for women. All it's done is confuse men. I heard the story of one man who went around the car to open the door for his wife and heard someone on the pavement say, does he think she can't open the door on her own? And he had the boss to say to this person on the pavement, of course she can open the door on her own. I do it because I love her. And that's good, isn't it? Men are confused. They don't want to patronise women. They don't want to ignore women. But I think half the time men don't know how to act towards women and they're confused about what real masculinity looks like. And so we're going to think about that whole subject uh, today. I think as well, just these are all kind of introductory points, I think some people would say, you're not going to get all this from the Bible, are you? (laughs) Well, we are in a church and I know I'm preaching to the choir. A lot of people think the Bible is anti-women, anti-everything. And I, I can't tell you as I prepared this, I hope this has come across in my preaching, I can't tell you how this series has underpinned and undergirded my confidence in the Bible being God's word. Because this works. This is heavenly material. This is not written from a purely humanistic point of view. This is God's wisdom. And if we'll submit to this as, as to God's word and apply those principles in our lives as men, women, husbands, wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, the world would be a better place. This is heavenly wisdom. This is God's word. And it's not anti-women. And I hope you'll see that by the time we get to the end. I hope you appreciated that last week. Um, the core issue, we're going to just have a little recap from Genesis. The core issue is one of men taking responsibility. And if you don't remember anything else that I say today, this is really where it's at. Men need to take their God-given responsibility seriously. And let's uh, just go back to Genesis. We did uh, go here last week briefly. I just want to recap this part as it pertains to men. If you go back with me to Genesis chapter 3. I said to you last week, sometimes we... um, We've talked uh, about these passages with couples who are getting married. Some of them Christians, some of them not Christians. And it's amazing as we go through these very important principles from Genesis. I've never really yet met a couple who have reacted negatively to the principles that are described here. And said that's not fair, that's not right. Um, What I want to show you really is that Adam failed to take responsibility 
And so let's just recap that. We touched on it last week. First of all, let me just show to you that Adam was there. In Genesis chapter 3, as the serpent comes into the garden and begins a conversation with Eve, we often assume in this passage that um, the serpent waited till Adam had gone swimming, working, you know, he'd gone on holiday around the other side of the Garden of Eden. He was on a mission to do something, naming animals or whatever it was. And the serpent came into the garden very subtly while Eve was on her own. Poor Eve. Just let me show you that that wasn't the case. In verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So there's no doubt that Adam was right there standing next to his wife and he said and did jack diddly squat. He was a coward. What was he thinking? As the serpent parlays with Eve, Adam's standing there with his hands in his pockets. Well, he didn't have clothes on, so he wouldn't have had his hands in his pockets. But Adam's standing there, metaphorically, with his hands in his pockets, thinking, she's good, isn't she, at talking? And he lets his wife do all the talking, and he says and does precisely nothing. At no point does he break in and say, hang on a minute, Eve, be careful, that's a lie. He stands there and watches Eve get deceived. And what does he do? Nothing. The man's a coward. He's abdicating his responsibility and leaving it all to his wife. That is terrifying. And let me show you again that God holds Adam accountable for this. When God comes into the garden later on, the man and his wife, verse 8, heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to who? What does it say? You tell me, what, what does it say? Who did God call to? The man. Adam, where are you? What a great question that is. If I could put a banner up over the whole world of what God wants to say to man, that would be it. Man, where are you? Hiding in the trees when you should be stood next to your wife, helping, protecting, loving and caring. Where are you? Adam. Adam can't hide. And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid. One of the things I've said to couples who are getting married is this. If God came to your house, I don't care whether this was your fault or not. I'm talking to men now. If God came to your house and knocked on the door and one of the children or the wife in the house answers the door, God would say, is the man of the house in? Because I've got business with him. That's what's going on here. God doesn't want to talk to Eve at this point. He wants to talk to Adam. Where have you been? What have you done? And men need to hear that. This is fundamentally what is wrong with our modern culture. Men failing. Men being exactly like their father Adam. Failing to live up to their responsibility. Absent. 
And God would say, where are you? Let me show you another place. I just, you know, I just want you to know I'm not making this up. Um, if we go to Romans chapter 5. This is a good passage for you to think, think about. <coughs> Romans chapter 5, it's on page 1132. If you've got one of the church Bibles. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Paul is developing his theology of the gospel. And he just breaking in at verse 12 there. I just want you to notice this one small point. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through what? Through one man. Why does he not mention Eve there? She took the fruit and then gave it to Adam. Why does he not say just as sin entered the world through Eve? She was deceived. Because from God's perspective, this was Adam's fault. He let his wife down and did not fulfil his responsibilities that God had given him. And from God's perspective, sin enters the world through one man. It's Adam's fault. In Genesis chapter 3, the blame game begins. We said last week, God says to Adam, what happened? Well, it's this woman I gave, you gave me. I mean, she's nice and that, but should have had a better model, really. She deceived me. It was her fault. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. The serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. You've heard the old joke. Boom, boom. They blame, that's the blame culture beginning. This is the beginning of gender war and blame culture right there in Genesis. So there's some good evidence that God held Adam as a man accountable. That doesn't mean that Eve was excused, but I'm just establishing the principle that God expects men to take responsibility for themselves, for their wives, families, and in culture and society in general. Often we think of sin as something that you do. You know, oh, I've sinned, I've done something awful. In this case, you know, theologians talk, don't they, about sins of commission, a sin that you do, and sins of omission, something that you should have done that you didn't do. We don't often think of sin in those terms. Adam, this is a sin of omission. He did not do what he should have been doing and failed in his responsibility to Eve. And I suppose the issue now is, we said this last week very briefly, that men generally will fall into two camps, or two extremes these are, I suppose. They will either be just like their father Adam, and abdicate their responsibility and behave like cowards or they will react against that and overcompensate by becoming chauvinists and men find it very hard to have a balance between those two extremes men will tend to do either too much and become bullies or, become too, or do too little and become cowards and it's hard for men to get the balance right between those two extremes. I think most men think, I want to be a good man, but they don't know what that looks like. There's no role model, there's no example, there's no ideal to base their concept of masculinity upon. And uh, 
someone said that in our growth group this week <laughs> you know there's no good examples out there and it, I, I, you fear for our culture don't you and our society kids are growing up with no kind of role models what does a good man look like no idea I'll just be like my dad was whatever that might have been and it's scary isn't it how kids are growing up with these things are not taught well so this is very important so what we're going to do I've been really helped um, in preparing this by a lot of helpful material one source in particular has really helped me to think through different kinds of traits in men some of which I see in me and I'm sorry about that Um, some of which I see in other men I'm sorry about that too um, and uh, so I, some of this is not original I've adapted some of what I've read and seen but what, one of the guys who's been a particular help here is a guy called Mark Driscoll in the States who, who just helping me think through these different traits first of all I want to think with you about men who instinctively don't want to be like Adam so these are men who don't want to be wet and don't want to be cowards and don't want to abdicate and the pitfall for them is they want to be strong, yes. These men say something like, whatever masculinity is, I know it's not weakness, so I'm just going to be strong. But the temptation is to become chauvinistic and go too far. So I want to talk about four different kinds of issue in this area first. And then we're going to think about Jesus and then we're going to get to 1 Peter. Okay, so here's a few things that I just want to say about what masculinity isn't. First of all, being a man is not just the opposite of being a woman. This is macho man, okay? Some of you will have had dads like this. You know, this man doesn't know what a man should be like, he just knows he's not a woman. So whatever he sees a woman doing, he just naturally does the opposite. He burps, he picks his nose, He likes to be lazy and a bit scruffy just to show that he's not a woman. He doesn't do girly things like show affection. Mum kisses the kids, so he doesn't. That's what women do. Mum likes to talk a lot and engage. That's what women do. I'm not going to do that. Mum says, I love you. Dad just wants to be sick and fix the car. Mum sometimes cries. That's what women do. I don't do that. I'm a man. Being a man is the opposite of being a woman. That's one uh, thing that men can think. I don't know what a man should do, but I'll just watch my wife and other women and just do the opposite to what they do, because surely that must be being a man. Men and women feel the same emotions, but react in different ways. And men need to be men. Women need to be women. But being a man is not just the opposite of being a woman. Okay? Secondly, being a man is not measured by success or status. This is not macho man. This is competitive man. All men have a degree of competitiveness. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But this guy, when it's taken to extreme, he defines his life by what he does. This is the kind of man who says, here's my job, look at my car, 
Look at my house. Look at my salary and my success. This is the kind of man who defines himself and derives his status and identity from his career, his job, his successes in life. The danger with this kind of man is that he treats his wife like another success. And her job is just to be quiet and shut up and look nice because she's just another trophy that shows that he's a winner. He doesn't really care for his wife. He cares really for his bank balance and his stuff. Sometimes men like this will spend all their spare time, not with their wives, but playing sport because they want to win. It is possible that maybe the wife was drawn initially by this kind of man. His drive, his enthusiasm, his ambition. But the problem is, as the marriage goes on, she increasingly becomes bored and frustrated and unfulfilled because the husband is trying to be a man by winning everything. I want to be a winner. All men want to be winners. But if you're a man and you neglect your wife, you are a loser, not a winner. If that's what you think being a man is and you neglect your wife, you're not a winner. You're a loser. Thirdly, masculinity does not mean being a bully. Some men, I'm sorry to say, get a kick somehow out of having wives who are scared of them. These men are angry, crude, intimidating and are not really happy unless their wife and even kids are scared of them. And often, this, you know this, often the sad thing is in these relationships that the husband will blame the wife for his anger and make her feel like she's the victim. I wouldn't be so angry if you. And he uses his physical strength to get his own way. What kind of man bullies a woman? That isn't manliness, that is a disgrace. <laughs> and let's, let's hear that said. That isn't manliness, that is a disgrace. If you think that is being a man, you could not be more wrong. What kind of man bullies a woman? If you want to bully someone, go and bully another man who's bigger than you. But don't bully a woman at home, behind closed doors. On a similar note, masculinity is not necessarily being in charge the whole time. Some men like to be the boss. Most men actually like to be the boss. And, um, but some men think that they have to be the boss all the time. They just love to tell everyone else what to do. Men like this love to speak, but don't know how to listen. This is the kind of guy that will fight over the wrong issues just to show that he's in charge. <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm embarrassed at, you know, about things I've done. We were talking about growth group about this on Thursday. I think sometimes men can just argue with their wives over the most trivial things just to show, you know, I'm the boss. You know that, don't you? And it's just ridiculous and pathetic. And 
I think this is true in the workplace. Some men find it hard to hold down a job because they're always telling their boss what to do. They just don't know how to listen and just submit and shut up, be quiet and just do what they're told. And what about in a church? What, what do you do when someone turns up to church and says, put me in charge of something, I'm a really great leader. I heard one preacher say, you can be in charge of being quiet and shutting up. <laughs> and I, how true is that? This is the kind of man who loves to lead, but is impossible to lead. This is the kind of man who loves to be an authority because it makes him feel big, but no one can tell him what to do. This guy will never ever submit to authority. And if someone does try and teach him something in a church context or rebuke him for something, he'll just leave and take his wife and kids with him. And the wife will be miserable and the kids will suffer because he can't listen and submit to authority. He has no regard for his wife or family. He's just fighting to try and be in charge all the time. And until he finds a church with a pastor who is stupid enough to let him have his way, he'll, he'll always be restless and hop from church to church until he finds a pastor who's daft enough to let him lead. Oh man, I'm fed up already. <laughs> oh man, horrible. Um, it's interesting here in verse 7 that Peter says husbands in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives that phrase is in verse 1 as well wives in the same way be submissive to your husbands when he says that in the same way he's obviously referring to the rest of the chapter because he's talking about authority and submission but really He's pointing back to Jesus. At the end of chapter 2, the great example that Peter uses is the Lord Jesus. Be like him, he's saying to wives, in the same way that Jesus submitted sometimes to unjust authority, you need to have the same attitude as Christ in, in politics, at work, in the home. You need to take your lead from Jesus. we talked about that last week but then he says in verse 7 husbands in the same way what that means is that Peter isn't saying listen husbands you're the boss all the time you're not under any authority you can do what you like bark out orders be the big man and what, he's, what Peter's saying is you man will only step up to play and take responsibility when you realise that that starts with you submitting to authority. Men are not God. That job is filled by God himself and he's big and he doesn't need any help being God. <laughs> Men are not God. Men are made by God to step up to the plate under God and lead well. When men think that they are God that's when problems come and that's why Peter says in the same way wives be like Jesus husbands be like Jesus we'll come back to that 
I think this is one reason why many men send their wives to church but can't go themselves. Because they just think, I don't want to go to church because I'll get told what to do and I can't handle that. I'll stay at home and read the paper. I don't think most men realise that actually manhood is about being right with God and finding your place in creation. And being able to submit does not lose your individuality, but it enhances it and helps you to be the kind of man that God wants you and will help you to be. Most men live in fear that that is an impossible ideal, which is one reason why they hide. I know I'm preaching to the choir because you are here. Well, we've summarised four things there. If you're a man and you think that this is what the Bible means when it says you're the head of the home, you've missed the point of the whole Bible. (laughs) If you think this kind of chauvinistic behaviour is what it means to be masculine, I said last week, there is no woman in this room or in this town who has gone into their room and prayed and said, Lord, send me this kind of man. I really want that. So if you think this is what being a real man is, then you'll disappoint the women in your life. Okay, I've had enough of that, so let's move on. Masculinity, I want to say this. Masculinity is grounded in Jesus. I came across a blog on the internet, and um, and I, and I, I want to just share this with you, because I think many men would laugh at this point. This guy's right on his blog and he said, I saw a bumper sticker on the back of a pickup truck on Thursday and it said, real men love Jesus. I damn near wet myself. I laugh so hard. I can understand that. It's not the kind of sticker I put on the back of my car. But I think a lot of men think, what has Jesus got to do with this? I'm not even sure if he existed. Never mind whether I should take an example from him. This guy goes on to make a whole list of what makes a real man. Some of them are good, some of them are not. But he ends by saying, a real man is all these things and so many more. There are too many to list, but one, but not one of these things has to do with loving imaginary play friends. Real men love those who love them and don't need invisible friends, i.e. Jesus. Is that what the Bible is? Jesus is just an invisible play friend for gullible, weak, wet man? I want to say to you, as we've been talking about authority structures, we've seen that Jesus is the great example of both sides of that equation. If you want to know how to follow well, you can look at Jesus, who came into the world and submitted to the will of his Father and followed perfectly. If you want to know what good submission looks like, Jesus is the example. But if you want to know what a good leader looks like, If you want to know what it looks like to step up and take responsibility, amazingly, Jesus shows that as well. And how how is that so? Being a man is not about physical strength, brute force. It's It's not about being the big boss or a bully. It's not about being a scruffy bachelor. Being a man is, in essence, about stepping up to the plate and taking responsibility. Why does Jesus show that? It's interesting that in 1 Corinthians 15, towards the end of that chapter, we don't need to change it, but Jesus is described as the last Adam. What a very significant title that is for Jesus. Adam was a coward and he failed to step up and take responsibility and 
the human race has been blighted because of that Jesus is the last Adam and one of the reasons that he is the last Adam is because he did what Adam didn't do he stepped up to the plate and said that's mine I'll handle that masculinity is grounded in Jesus the theologians talk about the incarnation Jesus we sang it this morning meekness and majesty Jesus is God who entered in to this mess in this world he didn't stay in heaven playing on his xbox he didn't go on holiday and abdicate his responsibility he didn't disappear and say that's not my job this wasn't even his fault and he clothes himself with human skin and comes into the world in Isaiah chapter 53 it says surely he carried our sorrows he bore our infirmities he stepped up to the plate and said that's mine I'll deal with that that is true manliness is it not many men in our culture have failed to take responsibility for things that are their fault Jesus comes in and takes hold of things that are nothing to do with his fault and says that's mine I'll deal with that in Romans chapter 5 sin comes into the world through one man righteousness comes into the world through one man Jesus Christ Jesus comes into the world and he's stretched out to die He takes on himself the failure of every man and woman who will trust in him and pays for our shame, failure, sin and guilt. That is real manliness. Adam's failure was to abdicate. Often men will overcompensate. Jesus shows that true masculinity is about stepping up and taking responsibility Just go with me to um, Ephesians chapter 5. Um, this is on page uh, 1176. Some of you wives last week maybe found it hard. 1176, Ephesians chapter 5. I just want to show you what the Bible says to men because it's way more scary than what the Bible says to you <laughs> if you're a woman. This is Paul speaking now, not Peter. Verse 22, chapter 5. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. But then he says to husbands, Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The standard for manliness is Jesus. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless 
In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And so it goes on. Isn't it incredible that the Bible describes the people of God generally as the bride of Christ? Isn't that an incredible picture? The individual Christians together corporately are like the bride that Jesus loved came into the world died, gave his life to purchase his bride to make her holy and beautiful and radiant Jesus steps in to a master is not his fault he steps up to the plate he bears our sins he pays for our failure we sang I am the guilty one yet I go free this is heroic, courageous, self-sacrificing love. And real manhood looks like that. So I'm not sure about the bumper sticker, real men love Jesus. I, that's twee. But when people think Jesus has nothing to say, oh, he does. This has got eternal value. And true masculinity is grounded in Jesus Okay, we need to get to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. It's a long introduction. What can we say? So, masculinity is about taking responsibility. Let's just read verse 7 again, and then we'll try and break it open. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and, and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers the, the, the banner that I want to put over that verse is masculinity is taking responsibility this verse 7 in a way describes what a man taking responsibility for his wife particularly will look like is that clear? so I want to say a few things about this verse and uh, the first thing I want you to notice is that masculinity is being involved, not absent. And the reason I say that from this verse is because Peter says, Husbands, live with your wives. And we might skip over that and sort of just dismiss it as a practical thing. This is a very intimate statement in the Greek. Um, one of the things I want to sort of say here is that Peter in this section on women talks about the fears of women and I, I said to you last week you know I've got a lot of sympathy with that men dominate the lives of women and children and there is a lot of reason for women to be afraid and how a woman responds to that and her faith in God will mark her out as a, as a godly woman but men dominate the lives of women and I think men know this when they have daughters and I, I've got two daughters who I love and we'll be tired a boy who hates them I, w I will break their knees if, if because they're precious and Imagine 
what it's going to be like for me to walk my daughter down the aisle and give her to another man. I have the fear that women have. What are you going to do with her? You break her heart and I will break your knees. And this, I, I don't think men appreciate this until they have daughters perhaps. I, I don't know. But maybe some men do. Peter here says, Husbands, live with your wives. He does not say, Men, live with a woman. That's the first thing, isn't it? Men, just living with women. Make it your wife. Marry her, for starters. <laughs> this is a serious business. It isn't just a piece of paper. Your woman has faith. She needs to hear you say in front of other people. I don't care if it's in a chair if you're a Christian or in a registry office if you're, if you're not a Christian. She needs to hear you say, I love you no matter what. And I'm prepared to stand up in front of other people and nail my colours to your mast. I'm not going to drift into this and then break your heart. I mean business. Women need to know that. All this business about marriage being a piece of paper, that is a lie. Women will blossom and flourish when there's unconditional love and care from a man who is faithful. I think women crave that and wonder whether it's really possible and give in sometimes to second best. So live with your wives, man. Don't live with a woman. Live with your wives. But this is the first century. This is 2,000 years ago and it's cultural explosive. One writer said this, in Greek and Roman society... It was common for the husband to expect his wife to clean the house and bear the children, but not to enter into a true intimate friendship with him. Wives were treated as objects. Maybe we're going back to the first century. <laughs> Peter here urges much more than functional convenience. He says, Husbands, live with your wife. What do you mean? We share the same bed, we live in the same house. Yeah, maybe you do. A lot of men give the impression of being indifferent, as though that is cool. And it isn't. It's a disgrace. Do not be absent. There's four types of men here. I don't think I've got them up on the screen, so I'll just tell you what they are. Sorry. Some men are absent because they're still little boys and they've not grown up yet. And they just can't cope. Long-term students struggling to have a job because it's too stressful. These are the kind of guys who are really nice. You couldn't argue with them because they'd cry if you did. This is the kind of man who, even when he leaves home, still takes his washing to his mum. Not when he's married, obviously. This is the kind of guy who wants to find a wife who's got a car and a nice house so he doesn't have to work for it. Some women can be attracted to that kind of man because they want to mother them but that isn't a marriage some men are absent because they just haven't grown up some men are the opposite of that and they are very strong reliable, capable wish I was like this in the realm of DIY some men are great at doing all the jobs, but they are emotionally absent. A man can say something like this, I work hard, provide you with a nice house, clothes and food, what more do you want? Inside, a woman will be saying, I didn't marry you for your job. What I want is you. 
There are many wives who are very well off materially and desperately lonely, waiting for their husbands to notice them, appreciate them, remember them, talk to them, waiting and waiting and waiting, and all the while the husband is strong, steady, reliable, does all the jobs, but the wife, that isn't living with your wife, that's sharing the same bed and living in the same house, that isn't what Peter's talking about. Some men are afraid to get involved in the lives of their children. Go and talk to your mum. What's that all about? Sometimes it's good for them to go and talk to their mum. Not decrying that at all. What man doesn't want to talk to his children? What man is afraid of his children? So some men haven't grown up, some men are strong and reliable, but in most absent, some men are really super pious. This is a big issue for Christian men. Sometimes, some wives, they have no idea what their husbands are going on about. They talk in this super spiritual language, give the impression that they've got this hotline to God, and that, you know, they, they know the Bible inside out, they le- they've learned Ezekiel off by heart, but they don't talk to their wife. Super spiritual and pious, and they hide behind that. And it's utterly worthless. I don't, I don't want you to misunderstand this. One of my great heroes is a, is a man called A.W. Tozer. Brilliant, incisive Christian writer. And I'm not saying he was a bad man at all. But someone's recently written a biography of A.W. Tozer. I think it was in one of the newspapers. And it said this. Tozer was a, reclu- a reclusive he, he had a reclusive disposition and coupled with the demands of a workload that was too heavy this left little time for his wife Ada and his family and the guy chooses to open his examination of Tozer's life with the quote I've had a lonely life he was a spiritual giant but a tough man to know and even his family felt the distance especially his wife some men can be super spiritual and yet emotionally absent. I don't know why that is, but it's just worth mentioning that as well. Some men fall into that trap. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a fear of being too engaged and so I don't want to talk to you. I'm having my quiet time. You know, it's kind of... Some men can be like, there's nothing wrong with having a quiet time. I want to encourage you men to have quiet times. You need to cultivate a relationship with Jesus that is your own and not your wife's. But don't make your Christian life an excuse for being a good husband. This is true for church as well, just as an aside here. Some churches like this, and people come in to a church and everyone's speaking a foreign language. Praying in language that if you don't understand the lingo, how can you participate? And it's like... We don't really want to engage with the riffraff outside. We're just going to be super spiritual and pray long prayers and use big words from the Bible. Nobody will know what we're on about, but that'll keep them away, won't it? Some churches can be like that. God forbid that our church ever becomes like that. We want to be accessible and engage with people and not hide behind a Christian veneer that is really an excuse. But that's a sermon for another time. 
What about this one? Men who are super cool and witty, but emotionally absent. This is the kind of guy who's always messing around, always fooling about, always joking around at home. This is the kind of man that can attract a woman. People say, don't they, a good sense of humour is an important quality in a man. Women are attracted by that. But if that's all there is, doesn't that become tedious after about ten minutes? This is the kind of guy, everybody loves him, but nobody respects him. You know this kind of man? This is the kind of man who can draw a crowd because he's a great joke teller, but nobody would ever follow him because he's not going anywhere. He's completely absent. His humour and fooling around is a cover for being absent and not engaged with his wife. I know a man like that. And they're a good laugh, but they must drive their wives nuts. And they crave more than just a joke teller. So masculinity means taking responsibility. And the first thing to say there is it means being involved, not absent. Are you still with me? You're not going to sleep, okay. We're nearly done. Masculinity is being thoughtful and not careless. Why do I say that? Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. In the King James Version of the Bible, it says, Husbands, live with your wives according to knowledge. That's an interesting turn of phrase, isn't it? I've thought about that this week. Live with your wives according to knowledge. Do you know, a lot of men, they know how the inside of a car works. They can strip a computer down and rebuild it. They know how chips work and all that stuff. But if you said to them, how does your wife work? They wouldn't have the foggiest idea. Live with your wife according to knowledge. Do you know your wife? Masculinity is about being thoughtful and not careless. And here's, here's some little subheadings. You know, I think for some men, it's important to say this. You need to open your eyes and actually notice your wife. Can I say that? Think about what she's doing. Think about her strengths. Encourage her, help her. One writer said this, for some reason men are often inept at understanding their wives on a deep level. So there are disappointments and hurt feelings that never get resolved. The husband shrugs his shoulders, ignores his wife, who he doesn't understand, and pours himself into his job, which seems to be something he can handle. She shares her feelings with women friends, gets caught up in the friends of raising children and running a household. And then the nest starts emptying and the wife starts thinking about going back to work or school, getting a fulfilling job. At about the same time, the man realises he isn't fulfilled in his job. And what he really wants is more intimacy with his now distant wife or a younger version who excites him more it is no surprise that the divorce curve shoots up at this point in life isn't it isn't that true and I came across uh, this little poem here um, guy, guy came across a guy called Stephen Cole he preached on this passage and he just he, I don't know where he got this from it's called The War if you want to copy this you can have it afterwards but uh this is what he says about a married couple. Their wedding pictures mocked them from the table. These two, whose minds no longer touched each other. 
They lived with such a heavy barricade between them that neither battering ram of words nor artilleries of touch could break it down. Somewhere between the oldest child's first tooth and the youngest daughter's graduation, they lost each other. Throughout the years, each slowly unravelled that tangled ball of string called self, and as they tugged at stubborn knots, each hid his searching from the other. Sometimes she cried at night and begged the whispering darkness to tell her who she was. He lay beside her, snoring like a hibernating bear, unaware of her winter. She took a course in modern art, trying to find herself in colours splashed upon a canvas and complaining to other women about men who were insensitive. He climbed into a tomb called The Office, wrapped his mind in a shroud of paper figures and buried himself in customers, and slowly the wall between them rose, cemented by the mortar of indifference. One day, reaching out to touch each other, they found a barrier they could not penetrate, and recalling from the coldness of the stone, each retreated from the stranger on the other side. For when love dies, it is not in a moment of angry battle, nor when the fiery, sorry, nor when the fiery bodies lose their heat. It lies panting, exhausted, expiring at the bottom of a wall it could not scale. Isn't that moving? And is it not the case that there are hundreds of thousands of couples, Christian couples, who could identify with every line of that? Men, be thoughtful and not careless. Open your eyes and notice your wife. Don't suppress her. This is another temptation for men. Sometimes men are very threatened by their wives wanting to do things. Um, don't misunderstand me here. There's times when I've said to Jane, you know, you can't do everything. I was reading the example of a, of a wife who wanted to homeschool her five children because she felt a failure if she didn't. She didn't feel like she was being a good mum. And the husband had to say to her, you can't do it. You just can't do it. I'm not talking about that. that. That's common sense. But some men are very threatened if their wife has interests and hobbies and wants to do things. And they just feel the need to keep them indoors, control their wives. Women are creative. And I think it's good for men not to suppress their wives. Let her do what she's good at. Spend time, do you spend time with your wife? Do you, do you go on dates with your wife? We have a joke in our marriage that, um, <laughs> can I say this? I should have asked Jane before. She's wondering what I'm going to say now. You know, sometimes when a couple are courting as a boyfriend and a girlfriend, they'll do anything, won't they, to please one another. And when they get married, it's like, well, we're married now. I'll just kind of be a slob. And sometimes Jane will jokingly say to me, you know, just imagine you're my boyfriend again. That's a good... And I'll say to her, well, you imagine you were my girlfriend then. <laughs> but is that not a good piece of advice, my couples, you know? You remember when you were courting? Spend time with your wife. Talk to her. One of the things that men really struggle with is sharing their 
secrets with their wife. You know, this is a big thing, isn't it? Wives are not mind readers. And I think some men need to decide. Uh, you know, my wife ought to be my best friend. And if you get to the end of your marriage and you have to say to your wife, I never knew you felt like that. Or she says, I never knew you felt like that. Something's gone wrong. What about this as well? Encourage her. Don't belittle her. So many men are sarcastic, unkind, make little jokes, belittle their wives in front of other people, reminding them of their weaknesses. I came across this little story, which is quite, quite a nice one. This was in the Reader's Digest. It's not a true story, a fictional story called Johnny Lingo's Eight Cow Wife. Johnny Lingo's Eight Cow Wife. You're thinking, what's that all about? This story takes place on a primitive Pacific island where a man used to pay the dowry for his wife in cows. Two or three cows would buy a decent wife. Four or five cows, a very nice wife. But Johnny Lingo offered an unheard of eight cows for Sarita, a girl who everyone else in the village thought was rather plain. And the local folks all made fun of Johnny, who they thought was crazy to pay so much for a plain wife. But when the teller of the story finally sees Johnny Lingo's wife, the writer is stunned by her beauty. How could this be the same woman that the villagers were talking about? What had happened? How did she become so beautiful? And the writer spoke to Johnny and said, and jo Johnny said, do you ever think what it must mean to a woman to know that her husband has settled on the lowest price for which she can be bought? And then later when the women talk and they boast of what their husbands paid for them, and one says four cows, another six, how does she feel, the woman who was sold for one or two? This could not happen to my Sarita. So you did this just to make your wife happy? I wanted her to be happy, yes, but I wanted more than that. You say she's different. That's true. Many things can change a woman. Things that happen inside, outside. But the thing that matters most to a woman is what she thinks about herself. And Sarita believed she was worth nothing. But now she knows she's worth more than any other woman in the islands. An eight-car wife. Encourage her. Build her up. Don't belittle her. I need to write along very quickly before we close. This is the last point. Masculinity means respect, not disrespect. Could equally use the word honour. And Peter qualifies this command in two ways. He talks about the woman being the weaker vessel. I have to put my crash helmet on again there. What's she on about there? But then he talks about her being heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. This is beautiful. This is what makes the Bible so unique and special. Men and women are equal but different. One writer says this, men are like a thermos flask. You can throw it on the floor and play football with it and it'll still work. Women are like a wine glass. You wouldn't dream of throwing that on the floor and playing football with that. Women are fragile and precious and valuable and need special care. That does not mean that they're inferior. They're different. They're complex they're creative. They're amazing. And, and men need to treat women not as their inferior, 
but is special. And this is radical, isn't it? Teaching because it identifies that men and women are equal, heirs of the same gracious gift of life, and yet different. Men are men, and women are women. Women are not super women. And they need care and protection and help and love and respect. There's a writer called Somerset Maugham whose mother was a very beautiful woman and she married a little ugly gnome-like man. And no one could understand why such a beautiful woman had married such an ugly man. And one of his books, Somerset Maugham quotes her as saying that she did so because he would never hurt me. He was courteous and kind. And she, as a woman, responded to that respectful, sensitive treatment. Honour your wife as your equal. She's not a toy to play with. She's not a trophy to show off. She's not a cart horse to do all the work. This is not a cold, calculating business relationship. Marriage is designed by God to involve intimate friendship and oneness and involvement and it takes patience and care on the part of man. She is precious and valuable. Be faithful to her. Protect her. Be involved and interested in her. Talk to her and with her. Work hard and carry your load. Be generous to her. Be involved with the kids. Lead spiritually. And for you, Christian man, be involved with your church. Show your kids where your priorities lie. Most women have to push their husbands to church. Be the kind of man who would be in church even if your wife didn't come. Step up to the plate and take responsibility for you, your wife, your kids. Be a good Christian man. Husband, father, employee. Well, we're setting off. I want to close with the last clause because Peter says something very unusual you would think that in this verse Peter would say husbands live with your wife considerately respect her as a weak so that you'll have a happy marriage but he doesn't say that he says husbands in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect weak apart heirs with you the grace gift of life why? so that nothing will hinder your prayers is that a bit weird? Man, you need to step up to the plate and take responsibility because if you don't, God himself will ignore you. Do you get that? Your wife is a child of God and if you break her heart, don't expect him to hear your prayers. You need to live like a man should live. Otherwise God will turn his back on you. Sometimes we think of prayer. Oh I should have a prayer life so that my life will be better. Peter says the opposite here. You need to sort your life out so that you can have a prayer life. Because if you're not living right you might as well talk to the ceiling. You wonder why you have a quiet time and it feels like God's not listening. Maybe you need to take your wife out on a date first and then come back and have a quiet time. God loves your wife even if you don't. (laughs) 
So don't neglect here and think that you can be a godly man. When you look into our culture, what a difference it would make if men were men. Not a chauvinistic man, but men who take responsibility, who are involved, not absent, considerate and thoughtful, not careless, and full of respect and honouring their wives. So many men need to stop being fearful and grow up and wear the pants and step up to the plate and stop hiding in the shadows and begin loving and caring for your wives. Amen. Oh,